Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction, a publishing grad student at NYU and an aspiring literary agent. Hi, I'm Kelly, a genre hopping writer, domestic goddess, which is a fancy way of saying that I am a stay-at-home mom and wife, and I occasionally captain the Hot Mess Express. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. This season, we're also starting to get into some interviews with other writers and industry professionals, so we're very excited for that and hope you'll enjoy those episodes as much as we did recording them. For today's episode, we're celebrating Zara because she turns 25 five days after this episode comes out. We asked you all to submit questions, so let's not, you know, prolong any further and just get right into it. What is your favorite genre and age category to write in and why? I'm going to answer the second half first. My favorite age category to write is new adults. Those aged characters are where I am. It's how I think, which means it's a lot more natural than me having to go back and think like a teen again for YA. And it also lets me write my stories as they're coming to me. That being said, I have really liked writing The Matchmakers, which is a young adult dystopian romance, but it's like upper young adult the same way that The Belgrave Legacy is, where there are some sexy things, but it's not new adult level and it's definitely not adult. When it comes to genre, I've written romance most. And it's not that I don't love it, but I think I like writing my new adult spy thriller, Kingpin Killers, the most because I don't have to worry about the emotional fallout of everything from two points of view, even if I'm only doing it from one point of view like I am in The Matchmakers, which is going to be the first time I've written a romance from one point of view with Kingpin Killers, it's plot and then emotional fallout from that. There is a lot of emotional stuff in there, but it's not like it affects two people, which means I have to think doubly hard about it. Like, obviously, romance is a very different genre than thriller. As writers, I think it's important that we experiment and see what it is exactly that we really enjoy writing, what we like to write, and then what we love creating. The only way to find out is by doing that and by genre hopping. So I encourage everyone to genre hop at least once. It's fun. Yeah. And like most of my story ideas actually at some level do involve romance. Kingpin Killers is an exception, which kind of shocked you, Kelly, when I told you. It definitely shocked my VIP Kofi Club tier when I told them. It's not to say that I don't love writing romance, but it also might be related to the burnout of having written two romance trilogies back to back. So Kingpin Killers is also a standalone. So I can't really say what is making me enjoy Kingpin Killers so much, but It is a breath of fresh air in every single aspect. I think that makes perfect sense. So moving right along here, I know with my birthday episode, we kind of touched on this, but what are your favorite and least favorite tropes? We already talked about fridging. So I mean, I guess if you want to throw that in there, you can, but we already kind of covered that we both hate that. Hate fridging, hate the romanticizing of unhealthy relationships. We've talked about that in Sarah Sutton's episode, and I think maybe even Jesse's episode. And 
definitely also in our genre gossip on romance episode before we did any of those interviews. I have a love-hate relationship with the chosen one trope, which I know you love. When it's done well, I love it. I think also there was fatigue of just reading it in every single story. So like now I'm more okay with it because I haven't read a story like that in a while, aside from what you've written. And... I agree with you on badly done love triangles. Maybe it's because I'm a very decisive person myself, but also in every single love triangle I've read, I've very clearly been like, it should be this person because the connection is obviously so much better. Is it not obvious that this person should end up with? Not to say that that option is healthy, because as we mentioned, a lot of novels like have unhealthy relationships, but it's still like the other one's clearly not it. So after my episode, I got to thinking about it more. How do you feel about a five-man band? I like it. In theory, I normally like what it leads to, but I feel like the temptation is to pigeonhole every single character into their role. Mm -hmm. I want and almost expect in a story for like, oh, maybe the brawn does have brains. The brawn should have brains, but maybe the team doesn't realize that. So I want there to be a moment in the story where they realize that type of thing. Because otherwise, if there isn't that type of realization, looking at a character with new eyes and being like, oh, you're capable of more than we thought, then I'm like, these are all two-dimensional characters. You did mention that, you know, Kingpin Killers is what you're working on, your breath of fresh air right now. Do you feel like your heroine falls into the femme fatale trope. How are you trying to avoid that? I think she has on past missions and part of me re-outlining it because I had been drafting it and it turns out that I can keep a lot more of that draft than I initially thought, which is great. She's played that part when she needs to. She grew up in a very cutthroat environment where survival of an agent is dependent on your ability to kill other people and carry out missions and things like that. So she does what she has to, but in my story, it's a lot more of the inner turmoil about these missions that she never had before. But when it becomes much more personal, she's forced to deal with it. So I feel like I avoid the femme fatale two-dimensional thing because she's not just a mindless soldier and she doesn't necessarily take joy in what she does. I think even with all the turmoil, she takes joy in excelling at what she does, but she is starting to grapple with the fact that that foundation is faulty. So she's good at what she does, but maybe doing what she does is not good. So I'll leave the trope talk there. Did you ever attend a book release party? And if so, for what book? I'm gonna say no, because it wasn't a book release party for a singular book. However, I did go to a writing conference where there was a panel of young adult authors discussing their fairy tale retellings and they were signing books there of their most recent book in their series. So it wasn't their release party or anything, but it was still like a new release. One of the books in School for Good and Evil, but I don't remember which book in that series was the one that he signed because I know he also signed the first book for me. And then there was 
Dorothy Must Die, that series, but I think it was the third book, like the finale until she kept going. And I'm blanking on who the third author was. So my bad. But yeah, those were the books. No shade. No shade. Third author. Yeah, no, it was just a long time ago. It was before I started keeping a bullet journal. And yeah, sorry. Have you ever pulled an all-nighter reading? And if so, what book? Oh, absolutely. I think the better question is, is what book haven't I pulled an all-nighter on? Books that I pulled all-nighters on, it really definitely started once I had ebooks on my phone. The last book that I pulled an all-nighter for was The Dating Dare by J.C. Lee, because I was reading the first book in that series, A Sweet Mess, during the evening and then instead of exercising any self-control on waiting to read the second book in the morning I just started it immediately after and pulled an all-nighter Have you ever based something in your writing on something from your real life? Absolutely. I based the dream that opens the first chapter of the Belgrave Legacy on a dream that I had. I based Stella, who's the mother in the first two books of the Belgrave Legacy trilogy, on my mom. And I based Fawn's grandma on my grandma. I guess you could say that I gave the father in the Stellar Blood trilogy my mom's protectiveness. I have definitely used my dancing and self-defense training in my stories. Yeah, I mean, I think like you said in your episode that we obviously take things from our real life and put it into our writing, but those are some examples of almost copying and pasting. I feel like with your aphantasia, it would be helpful if you did this. But have you ever based any characters off of a celebrity? There was an actress who I'd found a photo of who I was picturing to be Fawn while I was writing, I think, an earlier draft. And then I just stopped looking at that picture and went with what felt natural to me, which was just writing with my aphantasia, which involved me having to go through my manuscript multiple times being like, what eye color did I assign everyone and things like that, which was a little bit annoying. And that's something I still tell myself, write it down in the notes that you have on characters, because I technically have that in my Scrivener document. And then I always just forget to look. Even if I can look at a photo of an actor to describe features of my character, I still don't see the actor doing what I'm writing. So to me, it's kind of pointless still, but I understand why you would think that it would be useful. No, that makes sense. Do you enjoy writing the villain or the hero more? I feel like we touched on this on some past episode, maybe even season one. But when it came to the Belgrave legacy, I definitely enjoyed writing Lucifer because he just has all the swagger and stuff. But I really hated writing the villain in the Stellar Blood trilogy. 
So I think it depends. I don't really have a feeling either way about writing the villains in The Matchmakers because it's a group of them, but it's also more society and the circumstances that they put out that are the enemy. It's a little bit weird. Like there isn't a single villain. And then in Kingpin Killers, it's an organization and you're always wondering who is the villain. Kind of like with The Matchmakers, the villain is very clinical. I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't really have a feeling about writing him, but I'll probably have feelings once we reach the emotional climax of the story, because that's when he's going to be humanized. I feel very similar. I feel like a lot of stories recently, or at least the people I talk to, there's not really a big, bad Disney-esque villain. Yeah, I think we've moved past that. And like, don't get me wrong. I love the Disney renaissance and I love Scar and I like Jafar and Ursula. Don't love that they were all queer coded because that's not cool. But yeah, when I'm reading, I don't want a flat character. And in my stories, even if they seem flat, you know that there's more under the surface even if I don't show it. You are a self-published author, an author tour. Now you are an assistant at an agency and you are, you know, doing all of the things all of the time, it seems like. So have you actually found time or pockets to sleep or have you figured a way out of sleeping? I definitely still sleep. I wish I'd found a way around it because I feel like with all of, the things that you mentioned and you forgot to mention this podcast. I thought I said podcaster at the beginning. No. Oh, son of a bitch. I've been forcing myself to accept that work and homework are the priority, which is not something I need to tell myself because obviously I've been dealing with that my whole life, but that it can't be like you have time for two of your creative projects or just like going really deep on one because some days I just don't even have the energy. I think this past week I've gotten better at being able to have energy to do at least one creative thing every day. But it's definitely a shift and it's much more like maybe Saturday is my homework day and Sunday is my creative day. I understand the breaking days down like that. I also do something similar. I know that you come from a family of lawyers, Hmm. a long line of lawyers. So what would you be doing? If you weren't writing. Still wouldn't be a lawyer. (laughs) I think it's a noble profession. And I think Shakespeare saying, first thing we do, kill all the lawyers is unfair. Because while I understand that the law was very crooked and is still very crooked in a lot of instances, my family are not. Thank God. Maybe I'd be working at a nonprofit. Maybe I'd be a personal assistant. I've been a personal assistant at multiple nonprofits. So maybe just combine the two. Or maybe I'd be working in theater somehow, but I just can't imagine myself reaching a professional level. I only imagine myself being an assistant in those other fields because they're not my truest passion. How many stories have you finished but chose not to publish? I have my two shameless Nancy Drew ripoffs that I wrote for middle school assignments. I I wrote one and then I couldn't help myself from writing a sequel. (laughs) And then I'm trying to remember if I finished this other one, which is the only manuscript that my 
grandma ever got to see of mine beyond the Nancy Drew ones. I know I was having problems with it because it was just personal trauma and things like that while I was living the trauma before it got compartmentalized and repressed. And then it took a decade for me to realize that I had PTSD. It just became too hard to write. So I don't think I ever wrote to the end of that. But yeah, I think I can only count those two. Well, I love that you said that they were like shameless Nancy Drew ripoffs because I saw something earlier on Instagram. I can't remember who shared it. It was an author tuber, obviously. But it was like something about if your first stories weren't just shameless ripoffs of your favorite books at the time, then what were you even doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you ever created a character that would be Riley if she were a person in your story or a friendly animal side character? Oh, Riley would be an awesome Disney princess companion. She'd be so sassy. She would, but she's more of a princess herself. So I don't know if she'd accept being the sidekick. I feel like she'd be like, I'm the hero. The human is just here. Ooh. Ooh, story idea for you. You can write a story where this animal sidekick thinks that they're the main protagonist and then they go on their own journey to save the day. See, I'd rather you write that as a middle grade novel or a picture book because you would be able to do those. Again, I'm not pigeonholing you into writing those because your mom, which we discussed in your episode. Oh, I could totally do that. You had a picture book challenge and... You feel more drawn to writing middle grade than I do. So I think you should take that idea so my list doesn't get longer. And I'm just shamelessly not caring in this moment that it's going to make your list longer. You're too sweet. I thank you. I just just add this to the list. You know, I'm just passing the baton. I was like, oh, thank you for the gift. I'd rather you have it. You can take it back. (laughs) When I was rewriting The Belgrave Legacy from three different books about Fawn and Caleb's relationship into the single book that is called The Belgrave Legacy that you can now buy. I was debating on adding a dog and I wanted said dog to know that something was wrong and like not be able to talk and not have the witches in that story be able to mind read the animal. I didn't want to deal with that. But just Fawn would really like Caleb and her dog who likes everyone wouldn't. I would just like to go out and confirm that if a dog does not like you, I am immediately sus. But then it just became too complicated because I'm like, if that's there, then other things in the story don't work. So... Riley almost kind of made it into a story, but didn't. We won't break it to her that she got the cut. Well, I never actually wrote that scene. Maybe I'll write that scene and like put it on Kofi or something. Because that could be fun. Do you have a funny writing mistake that you would like to share with the world? I mean, a funny spelling thing that kept happening on my computer was... I have the older sister of the main character in The Matchmakers named Callie, which is short for Calliope, but I spelled it with a K because it just felt right. But since knowing you, Kelly, when I was writing it during NaNoWriMo 2021, it kept being like, Kelly. And I'm like, for once, no. So that was a funny thing. And then also, I guess my quirk of permanently and perpetually forgetting people's eye colors, I guess that's something else. 
What's your favorite food? My favorite cuisine is Chinese food, but it actually is really bad for my body because of the amount of salt content. Almost always triggers a migraine in me. So I guess if I don't pick that and I pick something that I can eat that doesn't mess up my body, it would be my mom's chicken pot pie. Very safe answer, and I respect that. <laughs> I was thinking along the lines of she's going to say sweets or savory, <laughs> like be very vague. I didn't know that was an option. I still stick with my answer even with those being on the table favorite movie of all time and they do not specify that you can have more than one so I'm gonna say just one favorite movie I'm gonna say two things not because they're both currently my favorite but I want to show that my answer has changed over time so my favorite used to be the 2005 Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden Pride and Prejudice Mm-hmm. I still love it. Don't get me wrong. My answer now is Hidden Figures, just because it shows that women can do anything. And whenever I need a little pick-me-up or I just need to get in the zone, I'll watch that. I loved Hidden Figures. It was really good. Before Hidden Figures, the thing that made me feel like I could do anything was Devil Wears Prada. Ooh, I only recently watched that in adulthood. I used to love that and I still do, but Hidden Figures has definitely surpassed it on my list of favorites. Movies. You know what I like? I don't want to say I like better than Devil Wears Prada, but I like as an alternative, the newer Corella. I love that too. I mean, they've said in interviews that they channeled that on purpose. Mm-hmm. And that movie, I don't care what anyone else says, it is a masterpiece. And now that we're talking about this stuff about like being able to do anything, even though this movie is about failure, the one I'm about to say, what we know in real life shows that he was a success. I'm talking about Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a autobiographical one-man show that Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent, the musical. I've watched Rent. I have no idea what Tick, Tick, Boom is because I guess I'm uncultured. (laughs) No, no, no. It's fine. I didn't know what it was before the movie came out because he used to perform it by himself. And obviously he died, or not obviously, maybe you're not a theater person. I'm not. He died before Rent opened, unfortunately. So he never got to see his dream come true or know how successful he was. Oh, no. But then after he died, his Tick, Tick, Boom was then turned into like a three-person show, which my mom wound up seeing. And it's really funny because Lin-Manuel Miranda played Jonathan Larson in the stage version my mom saw. And then he directed the movie on Netflix starring Andrew Garfield. But anyway, so I guess that's also there. But I, I'm i obsessed with it. I bet. But I, I don't think it has surpassed Hidden Figures yet. I think if we were doing this interview maybe even three months from now, I might have said that. Hidden Figures is really good. <laughs> Hidden Figures is my number one right now. And even if it ever loses that number one spot, I don't think it'll ever drop from my top 10. It's real good. Moving away from movie talk, because I could just sit here and talk about hours about movies. (laughs) What was one of the most surprising things you've learned in creating your books? So this could be about yourself as a writer 
or about the writing process. I surprised myself that I can, in fact, fast draft, which is what I did for the Stellar Blood trilogy. I think I kind of took my time on Obscure Origin. Like maybe I took three months on that. I mean, that's still fast drafting, but like I wasn't thinking I was going to be fast drafting with that. It just happened. But then with the second book and the third book, I knew I had to because of me deciding to rapid release, but making the really stupid decision of writing and finishing each book in the time period of finishing the previous one, but needing it to be done in time for publication. So I can fast draft. I'm not fast drafting either Kingpin Killers or The Matchmakers. I was a bit for each and then obviously life mainly becoming employed. She's working to my ability to fast draft. (laughs) But yeah, I never thought I'd be able to because it took me years to do the final version of the Belgrave Legacy Mm -hmm. from its first inception. So that was maybe like seven years, but the book itself, the Belgrave Legacy maybe took a year and then same with Unmoored and Taming the Alpha. So I thought I needed a year at minimum to do anything. And the answer is nope, I need at minimum three months if I focus on nothing else, which will probably never be possible in my life again. You know, I love that for you, though. I feel like you're a very busy social bee and this is good. I mean, I'd rather have a full time paying job that pays really well and has benefits and stuff than writing a book and hoping it gets traction. (laughs) So I'm not complaining at all. Yes. Now that you are a published author, podcaster, what would you tell your younger writer self, your baby writer self? Keep doing what you're doing, but get an outline. (laughs) I love that. With everything going on right now in like shady agents, I feel like this is something that is on the minds of a lot of writers. What is required to become an established literary agent? So technically anyone who says they want to be one can be one, but that's just like super shady the same way that anyone can create a publishing company if they want do your research, see their track record, all those types of things. But the accepted way that I think gives you the peace of mind that someone who claims to be a literary agent is actually a good literary agent or is learning to be a good literary agent is someone who's had an internship, gotten hired as an assistant, and then got promoted to being an agent. Because by going through all of that, they've gone through the ringer of learning how an agency works from the bottom up, and they have connections with people who an agent needs connections with. And they start making those connections as an assistant. But then by the time that their boss is like, hey, I think you can be a full-fledged agent now, they're not starting from scratch. You want someone who has those two levels behind them. There's steps to it like anything else. Yeah. Did you technically have to take all the schooling that you're doing right now or could you just try to get in at an agency? So I had an internship at a literary agency and then my boss there was like, oh, I'm a professor at the NYU Masters in Publishing program and I think it would be really good for you. But technically, if he had vouched for me to go to another agency for like another internship, it might have taken time. But it would have been fine. But I am grateful to be in the grad school program because it's connected me to so many more people and given me more knowledge about all the different aspects of publishing beyond 
a literary agency, but literary agents have to deal with people who are in those other aspects all the time. So it's been very good for me. Back. Yeah, no, of course. I just wanted you to know. Okay, so basically it, it is valuable, though to go and get schooling in a background. You could still do it without that, but it will be a little bit more challenging. Yeah, I mean, it also depends on the literary agency that you're interning at. You want a place that is actually dedicated and follows through on offering you the mentorship that they promise. But being exposed to the other aspects of the industry by professionals who are doing it and have been doing it in most cases for at least eight years, if not longer, it's helpful to know this is what an editor expects from the agent. It's not just, oh, this is what agents give to editors. It's here's the expectation on the other side. This is how marketing works. So if an agent knows that this is how the marketing department works, maybe the agent can save everyone a headache and be like, hey, author, like I know this is what you want, but realistically, this is what's going to happen. So can we come to a compromise that I then bring to the marketing department so that you don't alienate your team at your publishing house that I worked so hard to get you into type of thing. There was an author tubers react. That's on uh, Vixen of Fiction's YouTube channel. We'll be linked in the show notes. <laughs> what is the weirdest piece of advice that you have gotten in your life? I mean, kind of like you, I don't think I've ever had like really, really weird advice. Probably someone has worded something weirdly and I'm just forgetting. I mean, I think the saying nose to the grindstone is very weird because you don't want your nose to the grindstone or you'll lose your nose. Yeah, it's painful. <laughs> when it's a saying or something that like maybe it's been around for forever, but if you think about the, if you took it literally, you'd be like, that's awful advice. So I guess that answers the question, but I can't answer it any other way. Listen, whoever asked this question, I need you to come forward in a live stream and tell us what weird piece of advice you have gotten. Yeah, I'm also curious. Curious. <laughs> when did you first realize that you loved writing? I know we talked about this a little bit in our Welcome to Writish episode way back in season one. I think I realized I loved storytelling because I'd have them and then I'd say them and my mom would write them down for me. But I think I discovered loving writing while doing the Nancy Drew stories because that was the first time I was like really doing it, you know. You were really doing the thing. How have both your struggles and personal growth impacted what you enjoy about and the types of characters you create? I mean, I... I definitely think I've gotten meaner to my characters and like make them suffer more. <laughs> They're just so nonchalant, apologetic, like they suffer horribly. And by that, I feel like I've taken my mostly psychological trauma, but externalized it for my characters to make it. It makes it good for the plot. Yeah, good for the plot. The challenges are no longer just as internal as they were in my earlier stories that are not published. And then also I think the personal growth that I've had has allowed me to better write a character who is suppressing something and then has to deal with it because now I've, I'm not like fully on the other side. I don't want to give the impression that like, oh, all my problems are solved because I've been in therapy for like X number of years. I'm still working through stuff, but I better understand that this is where 
you need to go. And I understand the symptoms of someone who is suppressing something and maybe doesn't even realize it. How has growing up as an Asian female in a predominantly white family and environment affected your writing? This could be like your style, your voice, or the stories that you were telling. I don't think it's just being in a white family, but I think it's also just the way media in America has been for like way too long, where everyone has been forced to default for a very long time, that the hero is almost always like a white male. And in my family, obviously, there are white females. But the stupid movie thing where they're like, oh, unless it's a white male, people can't identify. And it's like, what do you mean? We've all been forced to the whole time. So when The Force Awakens came out and you had Ray, who's a white female, and Finn, who's a black man, like that was a really successful movie. So people should stop making that stupid argument. And then you have Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther. Yes. We've just proven it multiple times and I'm really sick of that unfounded argument. But I think like my being Asian, I've had a complicated experience with that part of my identity because at my obviously traumatic middle school, which I started attending when I was in nursery, so it was 11 years of hell, people were racist to me like from the very start. So I don't know if I asked for it or if my mom just stopped bringing it up or whatever, but we stopped highlighting that I was Asian for a very long time. And then all the anti-Asian violence became so big that it had to be in the news during the pandemic has kind of highlighted it again, even though I was starting to reconnect with the fact that I'm Asian because I had a Chinese roommate from China in undergrad. And I wanted to like reconnect with that part of me, even though it's very hard for me because like we've established, I'm in basically an entire white community I don't know if that's changed my storytelling. I'm not going to say it hasn't affected it because obviously my life experiences influence what I write, but I don't picture my characters as white being the default. And also this might be partially aphantasia, but I also don't picture them as being Asian necessarily. I just write characters as they come to me and they're always well-educated or have had the opportunity to be well-educated because that's my experience and that's me writing what I know. It's really hard to answer this question. I can't point to an instance of how it directly has affected me, but I'm sure that there's something about at some level where I've always known that like I'm not the same as my family and I'm sure that's embedded somewhere in the psyche of all my characters, even if it's not apparent or relevant to the plot. I also feel like even though you are in a predominantly like white family, that hasn't stopped you from wanting to tell Asian stories. Because I know on your list, even though it was recently, you added a story that I am blanking on because I'm a shitty friend. <laughs> it's about fox spirits, but instead of, you know, the Korean mythology that's been popping up in some stories, it's going to be the Chinese version. Yeah, I I want to do things, but obviously I feel like I have to do the research in a way that a white person might have to do research if they were writing an Asian story because I don't feel like I can just pull from experience. So it's weird because I know I'm othered on both ends. I feel like that could definitely, like you were saying, whether you realize it or not, kind of bleed into your characters. And I think that was a nice way to put a bow on that question. I don't want to say it was loaded. It was loaded. <laughs> so wrapping that up with a nice bow, moving on to the next one. <laughs>
What's one thing that is sure to always make you happy, even on your worst day? This is going to sound so dark, but watching an NCIS episode, which means there's always murder, but like knowing that it gets resolved and that justice prevails, which I mean, we could talk about how the early 2000s romanticized cops and things like that. Yeah, we're not really going to touch on that right now. But NCIS is a comfort show of mine. All right. Well, you know, that that's what matters. It makes you happy on your worst day. So it doesn't have to make sense to anybody else. What is your comfort food? Corn chowder or clam chowder and I don't know why, because I don't think I was introduced to it, at least until I was like eight. But I just like that it's heavier than some other soups, but it always just tastes really good and just always makes me feel better. I don't know how to describe why, but it is. It's okay. You don't have to describe because it's your comfort food. (laughs) What did you accomplish in your first 25 years of life and how will that impact the next 25 years of your life. I'm going to talk about the good things. I followed my writing dream. And that's not as if like, that's the end, like that's ongoing. I've learned more about my writing process. I have people to support me in that. I've learned a lot about the job I want and have had some experience to help me train for that job. And I'm now in the assistant position that will lead me to eventually becoming an agent. So Yeah, all good things. And then also underpinning or like along with everything is, you know, like the therapy. So our last question, question number 25, will you do differently in the next quarter of your life than you did in the first quarter? I will be more forgiving of myself for not being perfect all the time. I will recognize that I can't do everything all the time and I will spend more time doing what gives me joy and try to minimize stressors that when it comes down to it, aren't necessary. I think that that sounds good for you. Thank you, Kelly, for leading this interview. It feels really weird for me to be saying that, but I had a lot of fun. And for everyone who's listening, this has been the Reddish Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week when Kelly and I talk about the erotica genre. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Reddish Podcast, on Twitter at right underscore ish, and on TikTok at Reddish Podcast. And last but not least, on Kofi at Reddish. Bye. Bye.